Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the second youth forum of the school year. I am Sam Lehman, a senior at Shaker Heights High School and a member of the City Club of Cleveland's Youth Forum Council. I'm pleased to introduce today's forum, a conversation on how where a student resides in their primary schooling experience greatly impact their academic career for years to come. It's fairly well understood that zip code is just as much a predictor of an individual's life expectancy as genetics. Similarly, from birth, a child's future is often predicted by what school district they live in. In many cities across the country, the correlation between state report card grades and income is clear. Wealthier districts consistently score higher while poorer districts score lower. Thus, how students learn and the environments provided to them is crucial to their academic success. Today, four panelists join us to discuss this impact as well as possible solutions to alarming trends. Our panelists include Dr. Adam Voigt, Associate Professor of Curriculum and Foundations and Director of the Center for Urban Education in the College of Education and Human Services at Cleveland State University. Ariana Thomas, Director of the Aspire Program at Hathaway Brown School. Dr. Carl F. Wheatley, Associate Professor of Early Childhood Education and Coordinator of Early Childhood Education, uh, Early Childhood Teacher Education in the Department of Teacher Education at Cleveland State University. And Ryan Hurley, Co-Principal of Academic Life at St. Martin DePores High School. Here to guide our discussion is Youth Council Outreach Coordinator and Senior at Solon High School, Nicholas Caraballo. Nicholas, I turn the forum over to you. Thank you, Sam. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Caraballo. I'm a senior at Solon High School, and I'm also the Community Outreach Coordinator at the uh, City Club Youth Forum Council. I want to welcome you all to our second Youth Forum of the uh, meeting of the year. Um, we have a lot of great panelists with us today, and so without further ado, um, I would like to just begin by this moderated questioning period um, because I think it would be helpful for everyone to know a little bit more about your backgrounds. Um, so if you could just talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Would you like to begin? Sure. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Ryan Hurley again, and I'm the co-principal for academics at St. Martin de Porres High School. Um, so I definitely want to talk to all of you eighth graders uh, about your high school decision uh, after the forum. Um, St. Martin is, uh, has been my professional home for the last four years, and it has been an incredible experience to see how one school can provide opportunities for students um, that may not ha otherwise have had the, the opportunity to attend a college preparatory school where they get to go to work one day a week, uh, build a resume, network with people, um, network with CEOs of uh, major corporations in Northeast Ohio, um, major universities uh, and nonprofits here in Northeast Ohio. And so our students are building these, these resumes. And to think that, uh, that that would be possible for students that um, have varying educational backgrounds uh, was not something that I, I really thought could happen until I experienced it at St. Martin. Um, 
how I got to St. Martin is that I joined Teach for America out of college in 2006, and I taught and was an administrator in Eastern North Carolina. Uh, so I was surrounded by tobacco and cotton and peanut fields uh, for close to nine years as a teacher and a principal. Um, so I bring all of that experience in, in rural North Carolina to my work here in Cleveland. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Ariane Thomas, and I am the director of the Aspire program of Hathaway Brown. Um, my story actually begins in the Aspire program of Hathaway Brown. Um, the Aspire program, the purpose of Aspire is that uh, Hathaway Brown uh, looks to serve girls uh, from under-resourced areas in Cleveland. Uh, so we focus on looking at girls sometimes from Cleveland, East Cleveland, but actually anywhere in Cleveland and the, Cle the greater Cleveland area. And we look for girls in fifth grade and we serve them in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Um, and we serve them in the sense that we uh, provide academic enrichment and leadership opportunities because we believe in the promise of girls. Um, the second purpose of the Aspire program, and that's where my story starts, is uh, we also believe in cultivating and creating advocates for education and educational change, including creating a pipeline to um, change educational inequity. And uh, so the second part of Aspire is we take high school and college students and they teach our classes to our sixth, seventh, and eighth grade girls. So back when I was in college, a long time ago, I worked at Aspire, and then after working at Aspire, I did Teach for America also, uh, and I taught in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then I worked in Cleveland schools since then, and taught in, so I taught in Tulsa and Cleveland, and taught in, um, so I've taught in public, uh, charter, and now I work in private. So I bring that perspective of having worked in three different types of school systems. Um, traditionally, the public schools that I have worked in have been, since we're talking about what grade schools get, uh, traditionally the public schools I've worked in have been rated F or D. That's of course a single story about a school, but um, now being in an independent school, it's, very been, it's been very eye-opening. Um, so I wanna put in a plug if you know any fifth grade girls. Um, <laughs> who might be interested in applying to the Aspire program, but also as high school students, if you are looking, we actually focus on hiring high school girls as role models for our young ladies, but if you know high school girls or if you are interested when you are in college, it is a great opportunity uh, because at Aspire, we're looking to create advocates for education, but most importantly, we want to create leaders among the young women in Cleveland. Hi. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Adam Voigt. I'm the director of the Center for Urban Education at Cleveland State. I want to thank the Youth Council for organizing this forum. I think this is a great topic, and I'm really excited to, to be here to participate. So thanks for the invitation. Uh, the Center for Urban Education at Cleveland State is a research center, and we do research on the factors that influence the way that students learn and the way that schools function, both in Northeast Ohio and nationally. And we also do research on what works in improving schools. And we have an emphasis, as implied in the title of the center, on, uh, on urban education and urban schools in particular. Uh, I'm also a professor in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction, or Curriculum and Foundations at Cleveland State. And um, prior to coming to Cleveland State, I worked for a research center in California uh, called WestEd. And prior to that, I received my PhD at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. So I've lived and worked in a lot of different parts of the country. Um, and I've been in, in Cleveland now for the past five years. Uh, I grew up in Northern Michigan and taught high school social studies and English at an alternative school for a few years there before getting into uh, to academia. So happy to be here. 
Good morning, everyone. I'm Carl Wheatley. I'm the Director of Early Childhood Teacher Education at Cleveland State University. I've been in education almost 40 years um, as a teacher, as a researcher for almost 30 years, as a teacher educator for 33 years. Um, I worked in a group home for juvenile delinquent boys for a while. I taught preschool and kindergarten. I worked at an educational research foundation where I taught in their lab school. Um, traveled around and spread the gospel of the high scope approach to early childhood education, worked with a lot of Head Start programs. I directed a summer camp, residential summer camps programs for gifted and talented teenagers for many years. Um, in recent years, I've really been focusing on why we went down the path that we've gone down with test-driven education, um, standardized curriculum, uh, blaming teachers for everything. And I am, um, oh, I forgot a little of my history. I've also been a Sunday school teacher for um, 13 years in a church here in Cleveland. I, um, we homeschooled our kids all the way through high school because we didn't like, not because we didn't like public schools, we're strong supporters of public schools, but we didn't like what high stakes testing was doing to them. Um, so I've, been in a lot of alternative educational universes and um, experienced a lot of different things. Right now I'm working on a book that's about how can we transform education to help heal society and the planet quickly. That's it. All right, and again, thank you all so much for being here today. Um, as many of you know, this past year, the Cleveland School District received a D grade up from an F grade in the year prior on its state report card. How did the district get to this point, and are report card standards the correct way to measure school achievement? Yeah, I can start. Um, so to the last part of the question, I would say no. <laughs> um, so the state report card, it's an interesting phenomenon because what it purports to do is measure how well schools are doing. So each school in the state gets a grade, just like students get grades on their personal report cards. And the grades are meant to reflect how well the school's performing. Uh, a lot of research that's been done both in Northeast Ohio and nationally uh, shows pretty clearly that the best predictor of a school's uh, report card grade or the underlying metrics that go into determining what the report card grade is uh, the best predictor of those grades are the socioeconomic status and other demographic factors of the students that attend those schools. And schools don't really have any control over that. So schools do have control over things like the curriculum that they use, the instructional practices that teachers employ, uh, the way the building looks, all sorts of things. You can imagine all the things that schools have control over. And to me, those are the things that schools should ultimately be held accountable for, are the things that they have control over in the school building. But as I said, the best predictor of schools' report card grades and their performance indicators are the demographics of the students that they serve. In research that we did recently at the Center for Urban Ed in Cleveland, using the most recent wave of state report card data that just came out a couple months ago, we found that 80% of all of the variation in school report card grades across the state, amongst all schools in Ohio, 80% of all of the variance is explained by factors that schools have no control over. That includes the percentage of the students in the school who are economically disadvantaged, the percentage of students in the school with disabilities, the median household income in the neighborhood surrounding the school, 
So all of these factors that schools really can't do anything about are the biggest drivers or the biggest predictors of schools' report card grades. And so to me, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to hold schools accountable based on these report card grades that they really don't have a whole lot of control over. I want to piggyback on that. Um, and because I'm in early childhood, I want to read you a short story. Um, that, you know, it's not good night moon, um, but it is, it, it's just a mention, it's 65 to 89% of the variance in student outcomes is due to factors schools have no control over. And so what we've heard is rhetoric for about 40 years about low-performing schools, low-performing districts, high-performing countries. That's the wrong attribution of cause, right? Student outcomes are primarily driven by out-of-school factors. And the reason why it was attributed to schools was because they didn't want to fix the things that were really causing the problems. And that's, that's where the story comes in. Once upon a time, a friend and I were walking on a narrow peninsula between two rivers. The river to our left, Swan River, was flat and calm, with swans gliding around and beautiful flowers lining the banks. Coming down Swan River were large, luxurious boats filled with babies and young children. All the toys and books you could hope for, plus lots of adoring and supportive adults. Everybody looked relaxed and happy. <clears throat> then we turned to our right and saw that Rocky Rapids was a steep whitewater river. The babies and children were coming down those rapids, often all alone and tiny makeshift boats made of cardboard boxes and old plastic shopping bags. Sadly, the bodies, hearts, minds of many of those beautiful babies had been bruised by the jagged boulders and the rapids they had come through. There were adults coming down the rapids too, also looking bruised, battered, and just exhausted from the journey. My friend started pulling those babies and children out of the rapids as fast as he could, and for a while I was helping him. But then I turned and I started walking upstream. My friend yelled at me, what are you doing? We have all these babies to pull out of the rapids. I turned and said, I'm going upstream to stop whoever keeps sending all these beautiful babies down this river instead of that one. The jagged boulders in Rocky Rapids, and this is my 40 years of education, research, and experience, they include lack of material resources such as toys and books, fewer enriching experiences. Um, our kids were fortunate enough that we could take them to the art museum, to the science center. We, we brought them here a lot of times. We're members of the city club. We can afford all of those things. We go on trips or go to museums. Um, but the jagged boulders include lead poisoning, toxic stress, family breakdown, inequality, abuse, and more. The forces that send some of our beautiful babies down Rocky Rapids and others down Swan River our economic inequality in 400 years of structural racism. And those forces were created by our unhealthy economic system. And if you look at the research, everything, everything you care about in terms of child outcomes and social outcomes correlates with inequality. We have plenty of money in this country. We have plenty of money in this country, but we're 17th in the world in the amount of wealth the typical family has. You will often hear about average wealth. Well, that's factoring in Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos, and I don't have any of the money in my pocket. Typical wealth, we're 17th in the country, and we have you know, highest percentage of poor children. So 
you know, if you look at the research, the social psychology research, the educational research, as long as we hold on to an economic system that creates vast inequality in, in economic outcomes, you will always have vast inequality in educational outcomes, health outcomes, life outcomes, political power, et cetera. Um, so if I was going to send a message to you, yes, get a job when you're done with school, but we need to change to a system that takes care of the basic needs of everybody. Amen. Amen. That's my, that's my right. story. My story, and I'm sticking to it. Right. Um, so it's clear that socioeconomic disparities exist in education. Why is this the case, and subsequently, what can or is currently being done to address it? I think the story illustrates a lot of uh, what we see uh, in, in economic and social disparity. Um, there's, there is a wealth gap in America that, uh, there's, that continu continues to contribute to opportunity gaps as well. Um, when I think about the opportunities that are afforded, um, students that reside or, or come from different communities uh, in, in America, much of that is related to, much of those opportunities that they're afforded are related to um, the economics of, of either that community um, as a whole or individual families. And so I think, you know, when we, when we try to, to be creative and brainstorm what it is that we're supposed to do to educate students the best that we can, I think we really do have to look at what are the opportunities that exist for others um, outside of our immediate community, and how do we bring those opportunities into our students? Uh, it could be the museums, uh, it could be um, job experiences and opportunities um, and internships, um, but I think, I think we have to be really clear about what, it, what are the opportunities that some folks are getting and uh, how do we bring those in. And it, it takes a pretty seismic shift. You have to be really, we have to be really, really creative um, in thinking about these things because the, the opportunities are real. Um, I was, was reading not too long ago that uh, the, the, they did some research on, on students who go off to college and they were using a lot of uh, the information that Pell puts together. Pell is the, the uh, federal foundation that, or organization that uh, gives students money to go to college, especially low-income students. And uh, you know, what, what is suburban and urban matter? Um, I, I think around 15% of the high school students in America are African American, and 40% of those students uh, find themselves in schools that are predominantly African American. You might think, well, why, why does that matter? It matters because the, of the other statistics, the other opportunity, uh, opportunity differences. Um, so 40% of African Americans are uh, in a school that is a majority African-American school. 36% of the majority African-American schools in America offer calculus as a test. 60% of the majority white schools in America offer calculus as a, a course offering for students. So there, just that, that double uh, difference in opportunities really highlights um, how we need to like shuffle things up and be creative um, in order to fix this, uh, these disparities, because uh, they exist and they will perpetuate themselves um, generation after generation. Yeah, I don't. I think you're touching on. Um, we cannot talk about 
educational inequity without talking about how deeply racialized it is. Uh, when we look at, you know, when we look at success, what are called, what are good schools, quote, quote, good schools, they are typically wealthy and white schools. And that is deeply problematic and that we as a society need to have conversations about that. So I think that's the first step um, is acknowledging that and having open conversations because it's uncomfortable to talk about it. But if we don't talk about it, then we cannot make shifts. And then I think the question we also have to ask ourselves as a community is, and what I think about every day as an educator is, what do we want for our own kids versus what do we want for all kids? Um, the thing I think about as a leader too, if I ever open a school, or when I, when I taught at the school I worked at in Cleveland, I don't have any kids, but would I be willing to send my own kids to that school? I think if we ask some leaders in this country, their answer would be really interesting to find out what they would say. And that can be very revealing about the educational, I don't like to call it the achievement gap. Um, I think that puts sometimes, this is not for me, this is from a professor, Dr. Uh, Billings, who says that the achievement gap can sometimes put blame on kids. So I call it the education debt because it's what we owe our kids and that's what she calls it, it's the education debt. Um, so I think if we're willing to have those conversations and to ask ourselves again, like what do we want for all kids rather just for what do we want for our own kids, then we might make some shifts about and when thinking about equity. In regards to what Cleveland's doing, um, since I just came from Cleveland schools, I can say that there is some movement. They, Cleveland just announced Say Yes, which is open not only to CMSD schools, but also to any, well, yes, it's only CMSD schools, but if you go to a charter school and then go on to a CMSD high school, like if you go to Cleveland School of Science and Medicine, you are eligible for Say Yes, which could provide you with um, college opportunities in the sense that you could get free tuition, not room and board, but tuition. And uh, I would encourage you to do more research on it because I'm not by no means an expert on it, but they also are providing wraparound services, which is a huge component of creating equity within schools. So right now they're, oh, I think Say Yes is only in about um, six, 16 schools right now, but the goal is that at some point Say Yes wraparound services will be in every single school in Cleveland. So that could also start creating some shifts. All right, thank you. Uh, so since this is a forum sponsored by the Youth Forum Council, are there any ways that young people can get involved? Well, I would, I would say, kind of piggybacking off the last question, I, I completely agree with my fellow panelists in that um, if we want to do anything and get to the root cause of some of the inequalities that currently exist in public education and all K-12 education, uh, the solution really needs to start with big picture structural issues. Um, and those aren't easy things to, to intervene in. And I think that oftentimes as a public, we kind of become paralyzed by the, the kind of monumental task of, of, of affecting change in things like wealth inequality affecting change and things like the legacy of institutionalized racism in this country. Um, those are big issues and they're, they're, they're hard to make political um, headway on sometimes. Um, but ultimately, in my opinion, if we want to get to the root cause of some of the current issues and inequality in K-12 education, then there needs to be some, some intervention there. Um, in the meantime, uh, schools still have to do something. Uh, schools still have to, to do their best to try to affect the best outcomes that they can for the students that they serve. 
And I do believe that there are some things that schools can do in the face of some of these structural inequalities in, in our society to, to kind of make progress toward that end. Um, I think it, the Say Yes is an example of that. Um, and there are a lot of other promising interventions. Dr. Wheatley was kind of alluding to some of them as well. Uh, one really exciting intervention that I think stands to affect change that does involve students' uh, direct participation is the idea of, um, it's oftentimes referred to as student voice or uh, student-led research, wherein young people in schools are put in a position to name the problems, to identify the barriers that they think are getting in the way of their success. Um, and then in some instances, th there's a research component to it where students will actually research the issues that they think are the biggest barriers to their academic success or to their life success. They'll do research on the issue. They'll learn research skills. They'll survey their peers or conduct interviews with other people in the community. They'll analyze the data that they collect. And then they'll use what they've learned from their research to make, uh, to make recommendations or, to, or in fact, to kind of push politically <laughs> for a change on the part of adult decision makers in their schools and communities. Um, and there's been some really neat examples of that type of work uh, making real change in school systems and in communities across the country. Uh, in fact, in California a couple of years ago, a group of students who, uh, this started organically at the local district level, they ended up joining forces across the state to change the way in which the whole state school accountability system works. Um, forcing the state, essentially, to include students at the table when local districts put together what they call their local um, accountability plan. Um, and so that was an example of students really taking the reins and, and, um, and being the leaders and the drivers of, of education policy change. I'm going to toss in one more thing, is I'd like you to learn a new language. Um, economics is the mother tongue of policy making. And a lot of us don't know economics. And over my lifetime, economic policies have changed radically. And the fortunes of the poor and middle class have changed radically along with them. So when I, I was born in 1960, I know that's forever ago. Um, but when I was born, all boats were rising. The poor were actually gaining income faster than the, the top 20%, right? And it's because. It wasn't because white people were different or black people were different, it's because we had different economic policies. And the policies have been changed to basically vacuum up a lot of the wealth from the people on the bottom, the bottom 90%, and funnel it to the top 1%. So since 1989, the top 1% have gained $21 trillion in wealth, and the bottom, what is it, it's either the 50 or 90% have lost $900 billion. And that's just because, yeah, <laughs> this is big, right? And this is just a massive wealth transfer. And it's just because of things like tax law. So when you hear like Elizabeth Warren and you're starting to think about when you're going to vote talking about wealth tax, study these things. Understand how inequality is created. Understand how you fight it. Understand the consequences of it. There's a couple of great books. I you know your teachers assign books to you. So Donut Economics is a great book for learning this. The Spirit Level is a great book for learning about the effects of inequality on basically everything under the sun, including innovation, teen pregnancy, basically everything, you, you know, crime, drug use, depression, anxiety, everything, they go up with greater inequality. So learn economics as a language, um, and we're gonna need your help to start a 
a revolution. If you look at the research, I'm, basically we're in the 21st century and what we've been doing for the last four centuries will not work anymore. Um, the economic model we have can't heal society, it cannot heal the planet, it's actually killing the planet, right? And in the book Donate Economics, there are three things you have to do. You have to take care of the basic needs of everybody on Earth, not just people we like and people who are like us. Um, you have to make sure that the basic needs are met in a much more fair and equitable way, so much greater equality, much greater equality. And we used to have that in the U U.S. When I was alive, we used to have that. And then we need to live in a way that fits within the limits of what Mother Earth can provide. And right now, we are using up about 1.7 times what the Earth can provide per year. So we're like somebody who had millions of dollars in the bank, and we only make 100000 a year, but we're spending 170000 a year. And we've been overshooting and thus drawing down the biocapacity of the Earth for 50 years. Uh, so you've got to do those three things, but we, y'all need to learn some economics. Uh, one of the things, I, and I really appreciate um, the comment here about, like, we, again, we've, we've got to do some, some disruption and, and some pretty, some revolutionary change. And then, and I, I wanted, you know, everyone to know that, um, you know, we, we actually didn't talk a whole lot, uh, the panelists before this, but, uh, but we're pretty square in our thinking that, um, it, it, we're not dismissive of the question, does your zip code determine, you know, some of your outcomes or opportunities? Um, and we're not, you know, shuffling that to the side saying, well, schools don't have anything that they can do. We absolutely do. And, and we, we all are in the field to, to do that, to, to make our, our students better prepared and give them better educational opportunities. But at the root of it all, there are some seismic shifts that have to happen to really, really make gains on this. Um, but one thing that you can do, and one of the things that I've shared with my students over the years is there's some really, really good advice. Because one of the things that I would give you, advice I would give you is I'd say read, 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 read. Like really get into these facts and these statistics and these details. And sometimes you're gonna get into this stuff and you're gonna think, wow, this is super heavy. And this is maybe even about me. And I don't like what I feel this is, is saying about me. And, and I, I want you to hear some advice from uh, someone who's way smarter than I am. James Baldwin was writing a letter to his nephew um, that was published in 1963, so it also was pretty old, um, or, or not, not, not so old, um, <laughs> but it's super relevant. So he's writing to his nephew, and he tells his nephew, he says, listen, I want you to remember, please remember. And, he, and he's talking about uh, his, his nephew, who's, who's a, a black boy growing up in Harlem in 1963. And he's experiencing uh, the impact of, of racism, systemic racism, and, and how he perceives um, kind of the broader white culture and community is, is viewing him. And he says to his nephew, I want you to please remember that what they believe, what they do, and cause you to endure is not a testimony to your inferiority, but instead a testimony to their inhumanity and their fear. So that, that is the truth that I want you to hear today, that these facts and statistics aren't, aren't they don't have to be reality, um, but they persist because of, of some fear and some lack of creativity and some inertia. And on that note, I think I would add, um, I would encourage you to, um, there's a famous author, there's a TED talk, and I'm blanking on her name, but she talks about the danger of a single story. Um, and so I would encourage you 
to when you look and you read and you do research to try to visit places that you haven't been before. So, you know, before you, we all have images of our head. And so there's an image in your head. Everyone has an image. When they read, when they saw and they read on that paper that Cleveland earned a D, there was an image that came up in your head. And that image might not have matched the image of my school that I worked at in Cleveland because my school that I worked at in Cleveland was not a D in my heart and in the minds of the teachers and of my beautiful kids, we were not a D. So that's why I encourage you to go and visit schools or visit places and learn that and impact with the danger of a single story and what it means is a single story. And then if you find there's, a, there, there's this disconnect to your point, I think what everyone's saying is, uh, don't be afraid to interrupt the system or disrupt the system when you see those disconnects and call out injustices. And before I hand this off to Ethan, I just want to thank you guys uh, for being here today. It's abundantly clear that this problem and this crisis in our education system is far greater than one person. It's going to take really a movement and a revolution to get us to where we need to be. Again, thank you all so much. Good afternoon, my name is Ethan Thomas and I'm a senior at Vermilion High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. Today we are enjoying a Youth Forum panel on education and how location and access to resources can shape a student's education for years to come. Today's panel features Adam Voigt, PhD Associate Professor of Curriculum and Foundations and Director of the Center for Urban Education in the College of Education and Human Services at Cleveland State University, Ariana Thomas, Director of the Aspire Program at Hathaway Brown School, Carl F. Wheatley, PhD and Associate Professor of Early Childhood Education and Coordinator of Early Childhood Teacher Education in the Department of Teacher Education at Cleveland State University, and Ryan Hurley, MSA, Co-Principal of Academic Life at St. Martin de Porres High School. Our moderator today is Nicholas Caraballo, Outreach Coordinator of the City Club Youth Forum Council. We are about to begin the audience Q&A session. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you join, join us via our, web, via our webcast, we ask that your questions be brief, to the point, and actual questions. If you are joining us via our, web, via our webcast and would like to ask a question, please tweet your question at City Club Youth and we'll ask as time allows. Today's forum is also sponsored by AT&T and we thank you for your support. Holding microphones today are Youth Council members Maria Kondratova and Aya Aldasari. First question, please. Uh, good afternoon. I just wanted to ask the panel as a whole, what has been your experience with foreign-born students? Because from what I've seen, no matter what their economic status, they really seem to be out there struggling to get ahead. I'll toss in first. First, knowing two languages is an advantage. Um, this, it's not a deficit that you, you know, come to this country speaking Vietnamese or Spanish or whatever. Um, and my, my oldest sister was an ESL teacher, but learning two languages or knowing two languages or three or four or five really puts you in an advantage, both cognitively and in terms of, you know, how you're gonna do in, in, in adulthood. I think we often, we are not doing a good enough job serving those children. And then we're also, if English isn't my first language, we are sometimes beating up on the teachers of those children because the children aren't doing as well on tests. And it's like, 
well, English isn't my first language. Why do you think I'm not doing as well on the test? So I think this is going to become a bigger issue. In general, immigration helped build America. I think this, immigration helped build America. Diversity is a strength. Um, but we need to do a better job serving um, you know, immigrant children, children for whom English isn't their first language, um, because we, we haven't been doing as good a job as we could be. Yeah, and so I think um, there's, there's a little bit of danger, I think, in, in that question, um, or in how we, we look at uh, the story of you know, the immigrant who, who you know, comes to America and works really, really hard. Um, and that, that, again, is the single story that, that we tell uh, about immigration. Because I think what it has the danger of doing is causing us to look and say, well, gosh, why isn't everyone else like that? Why, what about, why aren't all the other American kids like working as hard as this immigrant who's, who's trying to scrape by because they just came to America and they're seizing this opportunity? There's a really, really good reason why a lot of students uh, in America um, are disengaged and uh, feel downtrodden and are, are put down um, in a lot of ways uh, in their opportunities and in their, in their school environments. Um, and so I think I want to keep that in mind as well. We keep talking about how all of the, there are many, many different uh, reasons why something happens and I think looking at all the facts and, and instead of saying, well, gosh, why isn't everyone working as hard as, as this foreign-born student who's, who's just come to America? I, I think it's, we, we should capture that energy and say, wow, they are working really, really hard. Um, that's fantastic, and we want to continue to encourage that. But at the same time, we've got to dismantle some of the, the reasons um, that are, some, some of the systemic reasons that other students uh, don't have, really have the opportunity, perhaps, um, as readily available to them to uh, lift themselves up and uh, and have the same the same sort of um, uh, born work ethic or whatever you want to call it. I, I just think there's there's danger in in that story. When I taught in Tulsa, I would say about seventy percent of my students were English language learners, and forty percent of them were not born in the United States. Um, and I just w wanted to add to what you said that um, I. And when compared to when I've taught in Cleveland, I have just never ever met a student who did not want to learn and was not motivated to learn. They express it different ways. But I think regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of any your racial identity, your ethnicity, where you were born, um, it doesn't matter. Every student wants to learn. They just express it different ways. Asking, does this program help school middle school students choose a high school that fits them in which they take the next ne next step to adulthood? Does the Aspire program specifically? The Aspire program? Um, the Aspire program, we do. The Aspire program is for girls, but there is a boys program called Reach that's at university school. Um, so I'm putting in a plug for them. <laughs> um, the Aspire program, we do. We help them look at high schools, and we help them apply to high schools. And uh, we look at Cleveland schools, we look at independent schools, we look at private schools. So I'm kind of like a counselor, too, in that sense. That was a great question. Thank you. I, I, I want to say, uh, just to piggyback off of that question about, um, I know we, we do have some middle schoolers in, in the room. 
One of the things, and we talked about the grades that CMSC got, uh, has, has gotten over the last couple of years in the report card. The fact that students, that eighth grade students thinking about high school in Cleveland today, the fact that there are uh, far more and, and really good options is drastically different than 10 years ago, than 15 years ago. And so when we think about you know, how, how schools have been judged based on one report card versus another, I think it really is important to step back and think, you know, what are the options for eighth graders right now compared to 10, 15 years ago? Um, even my school, St. Martin de Port's High School, we weren't around 15, 16 years ago. That's, that's about how old we are. And the fact that students can now decide, you know, if they want to come to my school because they want to go to work, they want a college preparatory environment with a faith background, they've got that option. If they want to go to an early college, they've got that option. If they want to go to a school that emphasizes the health sciences, they have that option. Um, I, I think that's pretty phenomenal and fantastic. You have a lot of options. My question is, do you guys feel that private school can often um, actually um, cause a greater um, uh, academic debt? Because uh, if you think about it, uh, private school kind of is great for the one percenters because thirty to $20,000 in tuition, your average family can't afford to pay that every year. Um, as, a, as one of the private school reps up here. Um, <laughs> I would say, you know, I think I think sometimes we we uh, we do put all you know private schools in in one bucket and think they you know it's one one percenters. I think um, again, I, I mentioned you know everyone everyone in here needs to read 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 and and learn as much as you can to be able to to enter into these really really important conversations. Um, and so I think I would you know that that question I think really like lean into that question and find out you know how are schools. Um, like the private institutions here in the greater Cleveland area, how are they reaching out to serve um, folks in the community who might need that opportunity uh, even more than some that, are, that, they're, that they're recruiting? Because I think what you'll find is that there are some private schools that are really, really reaching out uh, in, in providing opportunities to families in communities that they would not have it. Um, it our, our, our school, for example, St. Martin, is, again, it's, it's not a, it is a private school. Um, but we have an income threshold. So if you make too much money, you actually can't come to St. Martin. Um, so we are specifically geared towards students who desperately want to go to college, want to uh, have a career in, in a professional field, and um, want that college preparatory environment. And our families pay about $40 a month. So it's very affordable. But we can't do that unless we have lots and lots of people in Northeast Ohio and corporations in Northeast Ohio that say, you know what, we want to provide the same opportunity that students would get at these other private schools for students who would never be able to afford it. So I can answer, So I mean like Hathaway Brown, um, we don't have an income threshold, um, but we do have a commitment to the Cleveland community that you don't necessarily see at every private or independent school. Um, so an Aspire girl who does the Aspire program is not a Hathaway Brown student. Um, they are a student from Cleveland or East Cleveland who um, typically would not, uh, they would not go to Hathaway Brown. They have to go to a Cleveland school. Um, and the Aspire program spends typically over $10,000 on each girl. So um, that's kind of our commitment to trying to help the education debt. Whether it perpetuates it or not, that would be a lot to unpack. I mean. Um, 
when you look at some things, like for example, a lot of people, their students and families um, go to Hathaway Brown, but they might actually live in Cleveland, so they're still paying Cleveland taxes. Um, but it's a really good question you ask, and I think that we have to ask ourselves as a greater society questions like that. Hi, Lisa Ellis, school counselor, MC Squared STEM High School, um, and City Club Education Committee member. My question is, um, the way that public schools are funded in the state has been deemed unconstitutional multiple times by the Ohio Supreme Court. Uh, why hasn't there been any impactful change? Um, we say we are committed to freedom and equality in America. We aren't really. Um, we are not really committed to equal opportunity. I've been teaching at Cleveland State for 25 years. I remember my first year teaching, I did a thought experiment in class and I said, okay, what would happen if we changed the laws so that the per pupil expenditure for all kids in all schools is exactly the same? And people just imagine revolts, right? They imagine taxpayer revolts. Um, it's gonna be really hard to get educational equality until you get first, what I talked about before is economic equality, but people have to decide that, one of you mentioned this before, I care enough about your children, your children should have the same thing my children have. There, there shouldn't be anybody who's getting second best. Um, and we, you know, we need to have a national conversation about are we really serious about this? Um, because right now we're not serious and then we wind up doing a lot of band-aids on things. Um, I, I spend, as a teacher educator, I spend a whole bunch of time working with kids who, and teachers who work with kids who come down Rocky Rapids, right? That's part of my day job. The other part of my day job is looking down on the situation and saying we need to, we need to fix this two river situ you know, situation. But we need to talk about how this is immoral. Uh, just before he was assassinated, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, said, we as a nation need a radical revolution in values. Um, we need to start talking about how this is immoral. This is beneath us as a people. Um, other countries, there's lots of other wealthy countries where the, most, the kids in the most needy schools, they get more per pupil expenditure, right? And in the United States, I'm teaching a graduate course in child development right now. We, we talk a lot about how great the United States is. If you talk about child outcomes, we are at the bottom of the barrel of wealthy nations. We are at the bottom. We, depending upon which nations you include in the analysis, we are 22nd out of 22 or 21st out of 22. If you look at things like infant mortality, you look at poverty, you look at hunger, we are at the bottom. And, and part of the story of sort of American exceptionalism, we need to dent that a little bit and say, no, we are 17th in, in typical purse family wealth, and we are at the bottom of the barrel of wealthy nations in terms of which nation would the, a typical kid randomly assigned to you know, a family do best in. We're at the bottom of the barrel of that. But somehow that gets missed because we talk about the other stuff. So, you know, I, th I think we need that revolution in values. I would just add in, in response to your question, I think it's a really good question. And I think that the way that the state um, determines its funding formula is in fact one of those upstream interventions that could be addressed at some of the big socioeconomic macro issues that we brought up as the biggest perpetuators and drivers of 
um, of educational inequity in Ohio and in other states. So the state could make the decision to try to provide more resources to schools that serve students that need those resources most. And that would be an example of a progressive state funding formula. And Ohio has made the decision to not do that. And in fact, as you, as you uh, noted, that was deemed unconstitutional. And so in terms of what to do about that, <laughs> I, I don't really know. As far as I understand, the, the state's in violation of the law um, but I think it's kind of reached a point now where it needs to be more of a political push that's going to make anything happen um, to sort of, you know, take action on the fact that, that the law is being broken in the way that the state is allotting funds to schools around, around Ohio. I, I want to talk to you about your power. Um, we just had the, the two largest um, demonstrations in world history were the worldwide demonstration against the invasion of Iraq and the climate demonstration we just had on September 20th. And, the, and there was a, a demonstration, and they were led by, the second one was led by school children, teens. And I attended the demonstration here on Public Square. There were millions, millions of people nationwide attending this. If you have a lot more power than you think, if, if you decide, right, you are going to start speaking out about things and organizing demonstrations about something that you think is morally important. We've just had tied for the largest demonstration in world history led by school children, teenagers. Um, so you want to change something big, you need to have a clear message and you need to have something specific you're, you're, you're focused on. But then you talk to your parents and you talk to your grandparents and, and you start telling people this isn't right. Um, so I actually, and it's not fair for people in my generation to say, oh, it's all on you, because it's not. I'm, I'm there in the boat with you, but um, you have a lot of power, and I think right now a lot of people in the older generations are feeling like we've let you down in terms of the kind of world we've left you with, and I think people are going to be sensitive to when you stand up and say, we need to fix some of these things. So I'm a student at Shaker, and I know there's a, through a ProPublica project, you can look online at the discipline record for your school. And so my school is roughly 50% white, 50% black, and I think 93% of all students suspended are black, and every single student we've ever expelled in which there is a data set has been black. So what role does the school-to-prison pipeline, and that's a part of it, and does discipline within the school play as a part of this? Uh, <laughs> I'm really glad that you know those numbers. <laughs> Um, so kudos to you, um, because knowing is super, super important to be able to describe to folks the need for, for change and the need why things need to be, and, and, and the reason why we have to look into things being different. Because there are models out there, specifically in terms of, uh, of discipline, um, restorative practices, restorative justice is a huge movement across the country. And there are some schools that are instituting restorative practices because it's just, it's an appropriate way of being. Like the fundamental hypothesis being, you know, that people are healthier, happier, more successful if they believe that they were involved in a fair process. I think anybody can get behind that, right? Um, so there are some schools that are adopting that, like our school has in the last couple of years. Um, but then there are schools like, uh, like yours that are saying, wow, we maybe need to adopt something because our discipline's working for the most part if you just look at our, our raw data and like the global view. But if you unpack it, the disaggregate, it's not working for everybody. And that's the important thing. And so then there are some schools that are saying, okay, 
we need to maybe think about how, how do we communicate, um, how, how do we as a school embrace the idea of community with all of our kids? Because we're obviously not doing it based on those, those statistics. Um, you know, I, th I think that having worked in, in public and, and, and private schools both, I think in many, many cases we have, you know, we have criminalized misbehavior. Um, I have two boys. Uh, one is in kindergarten and one is in fourth grade. And they are boys. They uh, you drive me up the wall sometimes. <laughs> um, but uh, the fact that uh, you know I would have to fear as a parent um, if they were at school that they would be uh, either put in handcuffs or uh, sent uh, to uh, a detention center because of something that began as as their own. Um, uh, playfulness or their own, even even just their own understanding of respect and disrespect. The fact that we would criminalize something that began as a as as a miscommunication or whatever you want to call it um, is just just hor horrifying to me. And that is the exact feeling that so many of our parents have when they send um, specifically, you know, their black boys to school every day, and that's not okay. Right, I want to piggyback on that. We have a problem in education. There's too many white teachers teaching children who were not, classes that are not all white. Um, this is a problem, and it, it doesn't, I, I thought it'd be getting better by about now, and it doesn't seem to be getting better. So we have an issue with culturally responsive teaching in general, and with the makeup of our teacher force in particular. Um, but there's also the problem that our system of education was not designed based on what we know about how children learn and develop. So I'm speaking as an educational psychologist. It was designed by a bunch of men and industrialists um, based on what we understand about factories. Kids are not cars. Learning does not work like manufacturing. I would actually worry about the children who pay attention and sit still in some of these lessons, right? I consider that an unhealthy sign, that, that, that the spirit and the freedom of you has been beaten out of you somewhere along the way because a lot of what we are doing, um, I teach a doctoral course in motivation, I teach child development, we know this harms children. This is not how education is supposed to work. This is how you manufacture automobiles. Children have, and adults have, basic physical and psychological needs, and, and our school system is not designed to meet the basic psychological needs of children, or the teachers in them, by the way. And so you're going to get unhealthy results, and you're going to get kids acting out, and oftentimes acting out is actually a healthy sign that I'm going, there's something wrong here. I shouldn't be treated like this. Why are, you know, why are we learning this? What is this about? How does this connect to the real world? Um, so we need, aside from what I was talking about economics, we need education to actually pay attention to what we know about human development. And there are some schools that do a lovely job of that, some teachers who do a lovely job of that, but they are in the minority. Um, and, and a lot of what we've done over the last 20 years is pushing us, it's doubled down on the factory schooling system. That's the problem. That's not the solution. There was an article in the Washington Post. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a score reader, so we had a discussion okay. today in my score group, and I'm going to the score discussion at the Public Health Sports Center. So there was an article in the Washington Post about Shaker Heights, um, and it talks about Shaker Heights, the discrepancies um, academically between students of color and uh, white students at Shaker Heights. But what that article left out, and what I noticed, and maybe it sounds like what you noticed, is it didn't include disciplinary data. 
So, um, and again, to your point, I mean, what I did is I looked that data up and saw the exact same data. And I think that if you look at other suburban school districts, I don't know, but you might see the same thing. Um, and I think you're speaking to a larger issue. And um, you mentioned boys. Uh, so because I run a girls program, I'm going to mention that there's also an issue with black girls and black girls in particular in schools being suspended at a higher rate, being suspended, being penalized, and um, getting more detentions, getting and expelled at a higher rate. I think it's something like five times uh, higher than white girls. Um, there's a great book called Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools that I highly recommend you, you check out. Um, and it talks about and looks at that girls, black girls and black boys and kids of color in schools are oftentimes they face, they're adultified where they're looked at as being older and they're not. Um, and even like girls of color in particular in school sometimes what happens is uh, girls of color might even face discrimination like with their hair. And that could be things that are happening about in schools too. Like where, I mean, you were speaking, of, there are systems in place that were not made for girls of color. Like there are cases, and you've seen in the news, where girls of color, where they're asking them to change their hair, and it's just, it's actually just racist. Um, and also too, I think another point to make is, that you touched on is like, there is a major issue in education with lack of uh, diversity in education. I mean, look at, I'm gonna just call out that this panel is all <laughs> predominantly, I, I identify as white, I'm pretty sure everyone on this panel. I, I'm pretty white. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's me, it's a lot of white women and, and sometimes in leadership you find more white men. Um, but it's a major issue. I think we just hit like 2% of educators are black men. Um, so we need to diversify, um, which is a challenge, but it's also very, very possible. Which I, I would only say, so, so again, how do we, you know, what can you do and what can we do to, to like change this? Um, an African-American in America today is eight times less likely to get a college degree why is that, right? That, that's, not, that doesn't, that's not the story, that's not the truth. That is a statistic that all of you coming to forums like this, doing as, as well and as awesome as you are in your schools, um, questioning uh, why your schools uh, you know, operate the way that they do so that they can work better for you, all of those are gonna put you all on a path um, to getting to and through college so that, so that you can join in and, and step into these, uh, these, these phenomenal roles to help to change uh, this system. Um. Good afternoon, my name is Allie Dettelbach and I'm a junior at Hawkins School. Today at the City Club, we have been enjoying a forum on how a child's primary education has an impact on their future. City Club youth forums are sponsored by AT&T. We appreciate your continued support. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from the William M. Moyce Foundation with additional support from the donors you'll find listed in today's program. We are happy to have all of you here. Additionally, we welcome students from A.J. Rickoff School, Andrews Osborne Academy, Citizens Leadership Academy, Hathaway Brown School, Lutheran West High School, MC Squared STEM High School, and St. Francis Cleveland School. If you've enjoyed today's forum, join us December 11th at noon for the third youth forum of the 2019-2020 school year in which we will be discussing the foster care system. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you panelists, thank you ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned.
For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.